Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Hey, El, It's Tony Tipton-Martin. Listen, I am really nervous about coming into the walk-in with you. You're going to try to extract all those secrets that I have been keeping quiet on the down low all these years. You know I have been saying no to everybody that has invited me to podcast. But I'm really excited at the same time. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to share my journey uh, and how I got here. So... I'm scared, but I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Today, the Tony Tipton Martin is stepping into the walk-in with me. Tony is one of my mentors and someone I have admired for a long time. She's an award-winning food journalist using cultural heritage and cooking for social change. Early in her career, Tony broke barriers by becoming the first African-American woman to hold the position of food editor at a major daily newspaper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Since then, Tony has accomplished so much. She's been to the White House at the invitation of the First Lady, Michelle Obama. She's won a James Beard Award, and she's been a guest judge on Top Chef. But Tony's true mission in her work is sharing the real-life stories of this country's invisible African-American cooks. Her books, The Jemima Code and Jubilee, display African-American cooking in all of its rich history and vibrancy. And her next adventure is joining me at America's Test Kitchen. She recently accepted a position as the new editor-in-chief of Cook's Country, where she'll continue to unearth the stories of American cooking across the country. Let's step into the walk-in with Tony. I am so excited to have Tony Tipton Martin in the walk-in with me. I'm a little nervous as well. She is one of my mentors, someone I look up to greatly. And I'm just really excited to have a conversation about everything that's happened over the past few years since we've known each other and what is to come. I'm over the moon. Tony, welcome to the walk-in. Hi, Elle. I'm nervous and excited too, so we can just work through it together. Good, good. That's uh, comforting. I haven't been in the walk-in before. I think I want to kind of just really quickly create some context for the listeners about how we met. I was invited by Therese Nelson uh, in New York. I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and Therese sent me 
a message on Facebook telling me that a dinner was happening with some people that I needed to meet. She invited me to come. And so I I said, absolutely, yes. But I was like, absolutely pocket broke. I had zero money. I did the whole looking under the couch cushions for coins, trying to figure out how I'm going to get from Brooklyn to Harlem for this dinner. And I was able to make it there. But just remembering, like, I'm not going to be able to buy one bit of food. I'm so pocket broke. And I told Teresa, I was like, hey, I don't have any money. And she was like, just come. So I came to the Cecil and that's where I met you and uh, a host of other young Black food professionals that lived in New York. And at the time I was feeling very disconnected. I was still somewhat fresh out of school. I hadn't really made community in my line of work. So this was a, it was a huge moment. And I remember sitting across from you, but sitting next to June Jacobs, who shared her wine with me. She literally gave me a pour from her bottle of wine with me. And I don't remember who was sitting to my right, but I do remember eating a lot of bread and butter. Needless to say, although I was pretty hungry, it was one of the most special moments of my career. I just getting to sit around the table with you and your peers and friends and listening to those conversations and listening to the things that you had in mind for helping advance our work. It was a life-changing moment. I was at probably at one of my lowest points financially, but spiritually, mentally, emotionally, I was at a very high place and I was ready to do new things. So meeting you really shifted the whole, you know, the paradigm for me. That was a really pivotal moment for me, which might seem hard for uh, listeners to believe, considering how long I've been in the food world. But I mostly, as you described, felt disconnected and had a very small community of people that I was close to, that I trusted, that were supporters, and people that I considered friends. But I could see that there was a generation that was starting to become vibrant and animate new conversations about Black food folks. And so um, I just set up this crazy Facebook call that said, I'm going to be in town. Let's go show some love to the Cecil. So, you know, the, the, the objective was twofold. We could support a Black restaurateur which at the time I was also very sensitive to the fact that Black people trying to do a different kind of food than what was the expected and the norm, meaning soul food, they were not always um, widely appreciated. So one objective was to do that. But the second thought that I had was, I just wanted to meet you guys, right? I did not have any agenda other than whoever wants to come we're just going to be there. And so the idea of being able to share that with you guys was really, really special for me. And it still makes me emotional to know that I spent so many years alone and so much time quieting my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. While all of you were just starting to build up your voices, the contrast was really visible. FIFO, first in, first out. I want to hear more about you, Tony. The f- first segment of the walk-in podcast is called FIFO. Do you know what that means? I do. First in? First out. That's right. So I think that we might take a non-traditional approach. Instead of you telling me a lot about your career, because I feel like that's something that's widely published, I would really like for you to just tell me about 
growing up in L.A., you were born in the end of the 50s. So there was just a lot going on in the world at the time, probably in your early, you know, your formative years of the 60s before writing really happened. You know, I had a a non-traditional African-American experience if we compare to what people had perceived to be the Black experience, right? I had these mm-hmm. parents who left the South and did not want to talk about it anymore and the pain that was associated with it. And they were building a really exciting, uplifted life in L.A. Um, We were surrounded by people of affluence with money and stature. And, you know, the sky was the limit. The perception was we could be whatever we wanted to be. And that's how we were brought up was you can be whatever you want to be, but you have to be the best at it. Right. And so I grew up in this neighborhood that was built as a part of the Olympic village. And it was promoted to white families as a place to live up above the city's grime and crime um, because it's a hillside that pops up right out of the middle of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from the top, you have panoramic views of the city. You can see the ocean from there. You can feel the ocean breezes from there. It's really just a beautiful place to grow up. It was like an oasis as they described it. And Black people started to integrate that community. And of course, we had all of the usual white flight and all of those things that happened there. But it never really struck us as kids, the unrest and the inequity that was happening. Um, That sounds so naive, but that was the privilege that we had of growing up in that space where people could be what their dreams allowed. And then we were among the first group of kids to be bused out of the neighborhood. Our parents thought that was a great idea um, because as the neighborhood turned over, it became more African-American. You know, they were bringing kids from the east side and south central up to go to school where we were going to go to school. So then our parents move us to the west. Mm -hmm. And it always, you know, that was the first moment when we started to feel like maybe we were not welcome. Mm -hmm. You know, the counselors weren't as supportive and helpful and tried to steer us towards trade schools and things like that. And we even had a little rebellion in school because of some police brutality that took place um, when an African-American young lady had a party at her apartment in this white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so that next week, the kids were all, you know, planning there was going to be a race war. Mm. It was horrible. And, but what it did was activated that part of me that wanted to become involved in activism and truth-telling because there were two sides to the story. The whole discussion was about the Black kids wanting to rebel. It wasn't about the fact that they had been put down in the street like dogs because the music was too loud. And um, it led me into journalism and student government. And Mm -hmm. so my best friend, you know, sort of challenged me that if I had all of these opinions, why didn't I run for senior class president? And so I did. And I was a very insecure, chubby girl with a big gap between my teeth. So I didn't ever feel like I fit in and that anybody would vote for me. And yet I won. Mm. And so it just it set a course for me of finding an alternative way to tell stories, to try to change people's lives. Wow. That's a very direct path. And considering you grew up feeling like you could be whatever you wanted to be, was 
writing, reporting, journalism, was any of that like on your radar immediately? No. My initial plan was, um, I at the time I was fluent in French, and my career plan was to live in Paris and New York and work for the UN or some, I had this really hot idea, you know, that I was just going to spend the rest of my life speaking French. And that's what I wanted to do. In college, I um, was blessed to have an instructor who took a group of us to Montreal for an immersion Mm -hmm. uh, experience, you know, and that was where I got, you know, some of my first ideas about food and how different food culture was compared to what I grew up with in the hills. And this journalism instructor would bring in food um, for production days. And so I learned the difference between her Italian bolognese sauce and my mother's African-American spaghetti. And they are different. They are very different. That's they what are my, very, very different. My friend calls it Black Mama Spaghetti, which is... <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. Mix it all up together and let it sit until... Yeah. But yeah, so I, I started becoming exposed to global foods, global flavors. Mm-hmm. And I got this crazy idea from one of my professors that, you know, I should get a job in newspapers and that way I could get out ahead of my classmates So I drove my little car over to the black newspaper and asked for a job. As I said, growing up as a chubby girl, the insecurities are numerous for me. There's a scary monster behind almost every experience, right? You know, and yet here I I took this work challenge very differently, right? So Mm -hmm. this teacher tells me I should get this job and I go waltzing into this little newsroom And the lady at the front desk was so kind. She just said, oh, honey, that's not how things work. You just can't be a college student and come in here and expect to work for the newspaper. And I said, but my teacher, you know, and I had all of these explanations and I was very bold about it. And she sent me back to meet with the editor. Mm. And the editor said, wow, this is not the way this is done, but you're so bold about it. I will give you uh, a typing test and a editing test mm-hmm. and a headline writing test, I think. And if you pass, the job is yours. And I passed. And so she hired me and within a short time assigned me to start handling the food pages for that paper. Again, that monster really started creeping in because the woman I was replacing who had been doing the food was really clever. So, you know, that was the shadow I was coming up under at 19. And I just at that moment thought, I've got to find a way to maintain this job without being tormented. So I started studying the LA Times and food sections and reading more recipe-oriented things. And eventually, I did my first interview. I I called up um, the William Morris Agency and thought, I decided to do things that mattered to me. Mm -hmm. So I love chocolate chip cookies. So I called up and said I wanted to interview Wally Amos. uh, Famous Amos. Famous Amos cookies. Yes. (laughs) And so he agreed. And so he was my first big celebrity chef uh, interview at, you know, 19 or 20 years old. I can't even remember knowing anything at 19, but... I mean, it it all just sounds very self-guided, like instinctual, like, okay, I have this job, 
this is who I'm coming under. This is the way I need to start shifting my brain so that I can approach this task in this way. And even just like calling up famous Amos, it just sounds very bold. Would you consider yourself bold? Have you always been bold? Like at 19, like what was your thought process at that time? Well, my dad was stern, Mm -hmm. as many of the men in that generation were. They had survived civil rights and abuses of their own and did not want their children to endure any of that. And so he instilled in us at a very early age the importance of education and being your best. And so once it became evident that I was not going to be able to pursue my dream of living um, like a Francophile, I had to make a decision and I had to make it quickly Mm -hmm. so that I could move on through my college education. And so my answer to your question is some of my approach back then was sheer desperation, right? Mm -hmm. Just survival uh, as the ancestors did. Um, How can I make the best of this situation until I can get to the thing I'm after? So I say that because food wasn't my interest or my passion. I was really interested in hard news. I wanted to tell both sides to every story and that men are stories mm-hmm. for the most part. And so food didn't have that appeal for me. And so I just thought that that was something I was doing until I could get to where I wanted to be. Yeah. A means to an end, of course. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. So far twice I've heard you say like the both sides of a story um, moment happening in your life. Uh, first with the young woman having the party in her apartment and the police brutality and and realizing that there were two sides to that story and how having all the story told eventually became extremely important to you. Um, And that definitely has um, been evident in your career thus far. Like you are one of the most objective writers slash journalists slash storytellers slash historians that I know, you know, like that is a very very difficult way to tell a story because it requires you to know a lot about a lot of things, right? Was that challenging for you as a young writer um, coming into your career? Like the first thing people say that I can remember growing up, when you want to tell a story, the first thing older people will say is, what you know about that? You know, you know, (laughs) what you know about that? You know, and you're like, well, you know, I'm young. I know a little bit, you know, did you... Have those experiences even with food, you know, like in your career? Did you have people questioning what you could possibly know about it? And if so, what role did that play in starting the blog, Jemima Code, and writing Jubilee? Yeah, so, you know, journalism is rooted in not being part of the story. Mm. Um, Objectivity was what I was trained and conditioned on. And so I didn't have to know anything Mm -hmm. about the story. What I had to do was find the resources that did. And whether that eventually evolved into trying to find Black cooks to be the experts in the Jemima Code or consulting their recipe books for Jubilee, I have always been looking for that first-person interview because I am not supposed to be the holder of that information. I'm the translator. I'm the recorder Mm. as Mm -hmm. the journalist. And... I think that's part of the concern that I had as I watched the food industry shift. There was a lot of writing in the first person as I was coming up 
People were writing about the aroma in their grandmother's kitchen as the lead in and the introduction to lure you into a story. And then they would quickly move on to whatever the story elements were going to be about. Um, But I didn't ever really see that as journalism because it involved them. And I went to one of the best communication schools in the country and was privileged to learn under Bill Farr, who at the time was a reporter that was jailed for refusing to reveal his sources Mm. in a story about the mass murderer, Charles Manson. Wow. And he's the one who suggested that I, you know, follow this course as a way to use the soft feature side of the newspaper to move over to hard news. So it was never my intention to stay in soft news. But the pendulum swung and we moved from being primarily observers about the aroma in someone's grandmother's kitchen to it being about our grandmother's kitchen. And now we are where we are today, where Mm -hmm. stories are mostly about one person's experience. The Wall Slide. I would really love to... Um, step into the next segment of the walk-in, which is called the wall slide. Mm, The scary part. The scary part. And, you know, I'd like to always think I know quite a bit about my guest friends who come into the walk-in with me, you included. We've been very busy people in our careers and haven't always had the time to sit down and chat a lot. So I had to do some research about some things that may have happened along your path that I didn't know, uh, which is always a fun part. And one of the things I did not know, I learned that when you were trying to move Jemima Code along to become a book, that an agent had ghosted you, disappeared with your proposal. I would love to talk about the point at which you decided to start blogging. Jemima Code. And I know that that was born out of necessity because people were saying that there was no interest in this type of literature becoming a book. At the time that Jemima Code became a blog, blogging was, it was popular, but I feel like maybe at that time it was kind of narrowing down for us as people of color who were writers, because I feel like that was the beginning of us starting to get more books published. I don't know. I could, you know, I could be wrong, but I feel like It was around that time I was seeing more Black food writers, more Black writers in general. But tell me about turning Jemima Code into a blog, and then um, let's work our way into the ghosting of the agent, (laughs) because that sounds insane. Well, I have said publicly that I went kicking and screaming to the realm of blogging for all the reasons you've already heard. I did not want to be part of the story. I wanted the authors to be the story. The wall slide is bigger than that. Uh, My father was killed in Los Angeles, and I gave up my career uh, because of it and grew weary of the process of Black people being victimized by institutional racism. Mm. He was killed in a Los Angeles County hospital by an unsupervised surgeon. And our story was ignored. Even though I was a former Time staff writer, they buried the story on the back pages in a paragraph. Mm. Um, And we sued L.A. County. And it wasn't until we appeared on 60 Minutes that my family was taken more seriously. And at the conclusion of that, I 
sat quietly and asked myself about my purpose and what I was supposed to do with all of this experience and exposure and knowledge and access and started studying Southern food history. And that's how I encountered all of these women that I eventually write about for the Jemima Code. I was looking for first-person people to interview about their experiences as cooks in the South. Mm -hmm. And when I proposed that, I wanted it published so desperately that I showed my nimbleness to more than one editor and agent uh, by saying the book could be one of two things. It could be a collection of essays. It could be a cookbook. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I presented both of those as options. I was eventually um, signed on to a New York agency, and I still have all the emails exchanged between myself and that agent. And once they got a hold of the proposals, they stopped communicating with me and just disappeared. I have kept that quiet for years And only in recent years started talking about it after the success of the Jemima Code because I was a victim of the code, too. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't feel like I could take on an entire industry all by myself. And so in that futility between what happened to my dad and then what happened to me systemically, Mm -hmm. I saw the Internet as the great democratizer, even though I didn't believe in first-person journalism. But I had enough young people around me that I respected and loved that nudged me towards the internet and said, this is how you can find your tribe. This is where people will come for this information, even if the mainstream is not interested in hearing it. Yeah. And so the first um, article went up on what I considered Wednesday food page day. So I kept close to my history. I published these on Wednesdays, right? and I said that they would follow new style, that there would be mm-hmm. a, a piece of history about a cook, there would be a recipe from that cook, and wherever relevant, there would be photographs of them. And I did that for a year as a test run to see if I could really find my tribe or not, and I did. But it was hard. Did the experience with the agency in New York at any point, did it sit you down? When that happened, were you just like, I'm not going to do this or this is not going to happen? Did you have that moment? Well, you don't know, right? I think I've heard so many of you guys talking now about the camaraderie that you share and the ability to share experiences to make sure that you're getting the best deals Mm -hmm. and, you know, the best opportunities. Well, there was no one for me to talk to about that. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, all I know is that they weren't interested and anybody that I was close to that was white didn't see it as sinisterly as I did. Um, They just kept saying, people get rejections all the time. You're Mm -hmm. over thinking this. It's, you know, it's funny that you would pick that because that is definitely the kind of walk-in moment that only the closest people to me have known. Okay, so I would imagine that there's probably some people listening who are not familiar with the Jemima Code, perhaps the backstory behind the title of the book. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, because a lot of people have feelings about the Jemima image and, you know, how those feelings inspired this book, the title of the book, etc. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, at the time that I came up with that title, there was a call among young people to remove Aunt Jemima from the package. Right. And there were also calling for reparations for the family and restitution and so on. And I was struggling with removing the history of the Black cook. I'm crystal clear about the need to remove the trademark that was rooted in the stereotype and all of those negative dimensions of Black cooking that are entangled in this idea of Jemima person. But we hadn't yet learned enough about who the Aunt Jemima character was based on to remove it. I thought it was premature. I thought we needed mm-hmm. to learn more about real women so that we could put the character in context. Mm-hmm. And that represented the dual message, right? As I was researching history, discovering this incredible vacillation between a love for Black women and their authority and their cooking as represented in white cookbooks throughout the early 20th century and late 19th century. And yet the images associated with them, the pictures were disparaging. Mm -hmm. You know, they made the women look like dark monkeys in some pictures. The words used to describe them as illiterate and really super talented, but just without a brain, you know, in their heads. And those comments informed the blog logoing that I chose. I described what I was feeling to a young graphics design team in Austin, Texas, and they came back with this picture of the top of a woman's head with no face, only her brain tied in a do-rag. And I broke out crying right there in the middle of their office because as young people, they got it. Mm -hmm. And I thought they represent the very people that are trying to say, let's get rid of this bandana and this imagery. And what I wanted to say was we all are coming to this face with our own experience. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to put her face there. But what we want to retain is her brain. So it led me to start referring to the people I was discovering as the ladies and a few gentlemen and to say that I was embracing the bandana. Mm -hmm. Um, And that became my retort to the idea that she should be taken completely down. Mm -hmm. And somebody beautifully on Twitter said, finally, we were going to replace the Aunt Jemima with the Jemima code. And I, I wish I had thought of it, you know, it's just really well said um, that yeah. now we have real people. That's why mm-hmm. we don't need the cartoon on the package anymore. Yeah. Wow. Well, the Jemima code went on to win a James Beard award and really kind of set the tone for a lot of, Black women food writers, a lot of writers came down the pipeline as a result of Jemima Code. Um, Some of our favorites, like Nicole Taylor. Nicole was at that dinner, too. Yes, she was. Um, I do. I do. And I did not know either she or Therese. Mm -hmm. And when I arrived at my hotel room, they arranged for a delivery to be in my room. Mm. And there were all these welcoming treats to New York to make my time there special. 
And it still brings me to tears to know that they didn't know me at all, but they knew the images that I was trying to promote. And the Jemima Code had nowhere to go. You know, nobody would receive it. So in addition to putting it online, I made it into an art exhibit and blew the women up as you know big as we could so that you could interact with them. And so they began to touch people in ways that I couldn't even imagine they would or control. And I saw that in the reaction from the two of them. But also my first book signing was in New York with Bonnie Slotnick and her bookstore because she was instrumental in me obtaining one of the first most expensive oldest books in the collection. Yeah. And you showed up. And there were very few black people attending. Yeah. One woman stood up to express how much criticism she took for coming mm. to the event. Mm-hmm. And I heard that a lot that first year, that people were really whacked out about the title. Mm-hmm. It was provocative and it incited so many different reactions from different people. And that was the goal, was the goal for us to understand that African-American women have played such a big role in the creation of American cuisine that their images and their accomplishments cannot be contained in just one face. And so to have you, you were on your way rushing somewhere, Mm -hmm. but you ran in with your book, got it signed and ran out. And it instilled in me a very special connection to the next generation. Henry David Thoreau once said, what is the use of a house if you haven't got a tolerable planet to put it on? And that's the kind of social character that Room & Board brings to every product they offer. Natural materials are an important part of their furniture design, so they respect the materials and always source them responsibly. It's nice to have a beautiful dining room table, right? But a dining room table that is beautiful and sustainably sourced? That's great. For more info, design inspiration, and helpful advice, go to roomandboard.com. Samuel Adams founder Jim Cook has always felt indebted to the restaurant industry. They gave him a shot way before Samuel Adams Boston Lager became a household name. Restaurants have been my customers since I first started, and I never forgot all of the people who kind of adopted me back when we were nothing. They put in our beer when they didn't need to. And I always promised myself that someday I was going to find an opportunity to pay that back. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Jim got his chance to pay them back. Together with the Greg Hill Foundation, Samuel Adams quickly created the Restaurant Strong Fund and raised millions of dollars for the workers who needed it the most. For more information, visit restaurantstrong.org. Tony, you handle wall slide moments like no other I've ever seen. As long as I've known you, even when you encounter some sort of obstacle, be it big or small, you seem to be like so even keel about it. So matter of fact, tell me the secret. How do you do that? I've never seen you crack 
one time. And that's not to say that I think that you are unpenetratable and that things don't really break you down, but like, it just seems like you go through it and then you find a place to settle into, you sink your feet into it. And then something crazy happens. Like you join Cook's Country. (laughs) Like (laughs) I've never seen anything like it before in my life. I need to know, give me a secret, a tidbit. I don't know. So my memoir is full of them. Okay, good. Um, Okay. I am a woman of faith. I have a very strong faith and I have a very supportive husband. I'm also a crier. I cry a lot. I think that comes from being a chubby little girl and going inside and, you know, crying. You can't show the kids that they got to you. So you go inside and you cry. I think I'm also to be Really honest, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm probably a little punch drunk. I have been through every crisis on that crisis spectrum that they have, you know, changing jobs, changing career, remarrying, getting married, divorce, children, death. I've had all of those and lots of people have, Mm -hmm. Um, but I've experienced them in my adult life back to back. My husband and I have been through something every single solitary year of our marriage Mm -hmm. every year death disaster crisis something and it has shored up our faith and strengthened who we are Mm -hmm. after losing my dad what was brought to my attention was that i had my own unique race to run Mm. And I heard a wonderful sermon recently about the different kinds of races that we run. Some people run sprints. Some people run marathons. Everybody's run is different. I have slow twitch muscles. (laughs) They call them the kind that are not good for sprints. They're for long distance jogging, you know, endurance. And from our ancestors, from my faith, I develop an ability to persevere and find the encouragement and the purpose in whatever has happened to me, including what I call the murder of my father. And it's been really hard. I uh, refused to do this interview with you initially, and I've turned down all the others that I've been asked to do because I'm in the middle of writing my memoir. And I one way I've persevered was to tie all of these experiences up in a bow and put them aside and not live them every day. So writing a memoir means that you're revisiting a lot of those stories that you haven't paid attention to. So I learned to keep my friends close. And I know who they are in the industry even today. But going to Cook's Country, it's the ending of the race. You know, I've been training my entire career for this moment. Cook's Country, like every other institution, has its history and how it was started and what it has chosen as its approach to storytelling. And I don't think we have to turn the whole thing upside down to create room at the table for others. I think it's going to be a really wonderful moment to create just one big table, as Molly O'Neill called it in a book a few years ago. We can just tell everybody's story. Um, Yeah. And within those stories, there are going to be stories of survival, like people who kept their barbecue joint going 
after the fire and after the kid died and after this and after that. You know, there are stories that are going to uplift people. My vision is that they will be the kind of stories I've suppressed about my life and made sure that nobody knew till today. (laughs) But that helped hold up another human being, you know, by just talking about their spaghetti the difference between the two spaghettis. If we can find some commonality that we're both eating spaghetti, do we have to keep fighting about whether it has green peppers in it or not? You know, I mean, it's just, I'm excited. I'm really excited. Well, now that you have um, sent me to silent tears over here, we're going to move on to, I don't know, something else. Let's talk about food. Let's talk about food. What is your favorite thing to cook at home? Cooking for athletes. I have raised two lacrosse players and a swimmer. Mm -hmm. And my husband was a wrestler and played football at the Naval Academy. So these are all voracious eaters. Um, And so it didn't almost matter what I cooked as long as I cooked a lot of it. (laughs) They ate so much. And I tried, as you just experienced in my new, in my memoir, I've tried to uplift the mood by telling some of the funnier stories around cooking for them. And, um, you know, that perfectionist thing happened when I was making baby food for my middle son, Christian. I was ruining every gadget in the kitchen being a perfectionist. And he was like, he just grabbed me by the wrist and took a saucer and a fork and just was like, here, just use this. You know, it's filling the sink up with every dish. You know, I've burned packaged macaroni and cheese because they were just like, can we just have something simple? They knew they were getting really amazing food, but they wanted to feel ordinary like the other kids in the neighborhood. And, you know, packaged macaroni and cheese was the thing that, you know, if they could just have that and some Frankfurters, they were going to feel like they belonged or something. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I tried to make it one time and scorched it. And they thought that was hilarious. Um, What I prefer to do, having grown up again chubby with a vegetarian mother, I almost want to eat um, nothing but salad. I just Mm. really love salads. And that includes making taco salads um, because I'm known for talking about tacos. Um, That was their go-to thing. They knew that. I would come in the grocery store. They were hungry. We could make, you know, tacos quickly or we could make them more elaborately. But if I were left to my own devices when I'm alone, I eat salad. And I bake. I love to bake. As I say in Jubilee, I bake when I'm happy. I bake when I'm sad. I just, I love to bake. I like uh, to make Melinda Russell's lemon cake. Uh, Melinda Russell was a free woman of color um, Mm -hmm. who published a book in 1866. And I loved citing her book in Jubilee because um, that recipe makes its way all the way through black cookbooks, but it's also a big mainstay in white cookbooks. And it's one Mm. of those recipes. How can we know where it started, who started it first? But it just shows the balance. I'm not claiming that we did it first and they can't claim they did it first either. We can all just say, we really love this lemon cake. Um, So I love to bake. Lately, I've been kind of, you know, dealing with my own personal things and have been craving sweets more than ever. I tell people all the time, I want all my calories in savory foods, right? Like, I've always been one to pass on dessert. Like, just give me more food. But these days, I I think I'm shifting into some sort of person who wants to lean into these sort of, like, comfort, sweet recipes. And even personally having the desire to bake it. Baking is very intimidating to me. So I think I can relate to that 
feeling the need to bake something at some point to express, you know, an emotion or needing to feel a certain feeling or memory from that experience. And, you know, baking is generally, I think there's a chemistry, a physiology connected to soothing oneself with carbs. They do talk about that. Mm-hmm. But baking is uh, celebratory. Mm-hmm. You tend to think about baked goods as coming at the end of a really great meal. You can think about it um, as the birthday cake that you loved or the cupcakes that somebody sweet brought to your classroom, you know, when you were young. Um, so baking, I think, has an additional element. I mean, there are plenty of savory cooks who say that making a really wonderful roast chicken and giving that to somebody or, or you know, Jewish mother's sure. chicken soup. Everybody finds their own space of comfort, but maybe because my mother was a <laughs> vegetarian and so we were always, I do write about that, you know, that um, I had a couple of experiences with meat that uh, drove me away from protein as a young girl. And so I've supplemented with a lot of carbs, um, you know, because I didn't want to eat the meat. Yeah. Um, and then she became a vegetarian and it just compounded what I was already feeling. I wrote about this story in Cooking Light about removing pork from our diet, my family's diet. And, you know, so the boys, I would make food for them, Mm -hmm. Um, but I just didn't eat it. And I knew that I was involved in the food world and exposed to some of the most um, amazing cuisine, global cuisine. And so I was going to want to take a bite. And having seen my mom become physically ill, if she reinserted meat into her diet, I always made sure that I maintained exposure to meat in some way, um, mm-hmm. just a bite here and there. Um, and plus, some recipes are really wonderful. I have a flank steak chimichurri that they really, we all just really, really love. And so there are plenty of dishes that we stand around and can't even get to the table, right? <laughs> there, you eat them at the stove. And that was a way for me to, to um, retain my ability to process meat without being a full-on vegetarian. Well, from my experience with working and tasting and writing with Cook's Country Magazine, I'm wishing you all the luck because there's nothing but delicious, all the things you just named. (laughs) And I'm going to just say a silent prayer that your salads can hold their own (laughs) because this is going to be very challenging. You are coming to a situation of a lot of dangerously delicious recipes my heart goes out to you. Um, <laughs> well, thank hope, you very much. You know, hope I, you have um, a stationary bike. You're going to need it. <laughs> a moment in the walk-in. This is where a listener writes a letter to our guest um, to ask advice. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's professional. And um, I have a letter here from someone to you. Would you like to hear it? I would. Okay, so this letter is from Kendra in Detroit. So Kendra's a homegirl. Hey, Kendra. Hey, Kendra. Shout out to Detroit. I'm going to just kind of paraphrase. Kendra is um, an aspiring food writer, and she wants to know how she can approach her career without being a victim of tokenization. And she's also asking a bit about how to be writing about cultural foods in a respectful way and avoiding appropriation. She says, I want to make sure that I'm writing from the most authentic place 
As a person of color, I do not feel that we are exempt from practicing cultural appropriation from time to time. And so I want to know how to address such in my career that I am showing the proper respect when approaching cultural cuisines. Well, it sounds to me like Kendra is um, 50%, 75% of the way there. Just the awareness of the capacity for appropriating recipes and for disrespecting culture. There is no original recipe. All recipes have been brought about by fusing cultural practices and habits together whether that's based on the local environment and the foods that are available, the indigenous ingredients of a region, or a technique that you observe someone else practice and you integrate that without even realizing that, you know, cooking that over a high flame because you saw a Chinese person do it, they did it in a wok and you don't do it in a wok, so you don't see it as It's not appropriated directly, but they were your inspiration. How far do we have to go? is the question everyone asks when they get bogged down in the ideology of appropriating. And I have said that, you know, I didn't conceive of this. Ed Lee said it when we were on a panel together that um, rather than focusing on appropriation, we should think about it in terms of appreciation. And if we could just spin our approach to that as our perspective, then the respect seems I could be naive, but I think the respect flows naturally. You are in awe of what you have observed someone do. You're not self-centered in thinking that it's only about you. Trends change. And there's a time when people don't want to write about the food of their culture because they want to be known as nimble enough to write about other cultures. Then there's a time when you want to write about culture because you are considered proficient in that way and people Mm -hmm. assume that you have an expertise because of your proximity to the culture or as a member of that culture. But there are plenty of us that didn't grow up eating soul food and would not be any more proficient at cooking soul food than we would be at cooking Italian food. Right. And so I just think we've layered on a lot of burdens onto food writing. Mm -hmm. I just hate the word whitewash because it has a negative connotation. When what I mean to say is we have made a dish bland, neutralized it, tried to create a universal experience so that everyone can come to spaghetti without thinking about the origins of it. Just do you like the taste of it or not? Mm -hmm. And that does lead to erasure. It does lead to Columbusing. It leads to all the things that are out there. I'm not naive about that. Yeah, And it seems to happen more regarding our food. Mm -hmm. So there is a moment that I feel we're in where it's important to acknowledge what the origins of the dish are. And I don't think it has to be a long history. It can be accomplished in a sentence to just explain that this is from the south of France or this is the way that Rodney Scott makes it. Right. And we can still maintain our expertise as the ones who refined it, mm-hmm. who changed it to our tastes, right? Sure. We can still be authoritative mm-hmm. without having to erase the people that inspired the dish. So I think she's already on her way. You know, she's aware that she doesn't want to be tokenized and she wants to give respect. I think she's really already there. 
Well, Kendra, you heard it from the source that you are already well on your way. It sounds like trusting your instincts about your feelings as it relates to approaching recipes doesn't feel good in your gut. You know, it sounds like how you are representing the recipe should come naturally in terms of your excitement when you approach it. And I think if you're following that path, it sounds like as a future food writer or journalist, your awareness of how recipes should be approached and respected in wherever you land that their origin is, you know, I think that you'll be a good proficient writer. So good luck on your endeavors, Kendra. We hope to see some writing from you in the near future. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for your question. Yeah, and thank you for that question. That was a very awesome question, quite timely. I think a lot of people are probably grappling with that question right now. So that was a good opportunity for us to talk about it and tap in and see about ways to be being the most professional and proficient and honest and real in our writing about food. Thank you for taking the time to answer that, Tony. Thank you so much for stepping into the walk-in with me. I, I hope it was as painless and painful as you may have thought it would be. <laughs> it was painless and you were warm and generous and comforting. So thank you for inviting me in to a thank space you. that I don't generally occupy. Well, it has brought us closer. I'm so excited to have you in-house with us at America's Test Kitchen. It's a very big, bold step for our brand. Congratulations for reaching the chapter in which that comes naturally for your um, transitions in your career. I'm excited that it is that. I think I can speak for all of us to say that we're very excited to have you here. And any move that we hope to be making in the future is only one that's going to elevate our entire brand to the next level. You know, not resting that on your shoulders, but just being very happy to have someone new on the team who also is committed to that work. Well, I'm excited to join you. All of my interactions from the moment that you invited me up as part of the diversity work that you do for America's Test Kitchen was really eye-opening to me about the opportunities that still exist for us to bring about this idea of a larger, more welcoming table. And your presence there But really the fact that the decision was made, not to hire me specifically, but to hire an African-American woman who's not young, says a lot about the brand and its ambitions for the future and walking the talk rather than a performative action because my reputation is out there. It's big and, and anyone that gets me knows what they're getting. I'm going to push the envelope about equity, but it's equity for everyone, you know? And and so the questions will always be, could you have substituted this sentence for a different one? One that gives us more information about the cook. It's cook's country. (laughs) It's cook's country. That is the perfect period at the end of this sentence. (laughs) Thank you, Tony. It was so amazing having you in the walk-in. I'm so grateful that you're with us and I look forward to seeing you uh, real soon. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you too. If you want to learn more about Tony's incredible work, give her a follow on Instagram. She's at Tony Tipton Martin. You can also learn more at her website, TonyTiptonMartin.com. 
And I highly recommend grabbing yourself a copy of Jubilee. It's a beautiful book and you'll learn so much about African-American heritage and culture as you cook your way through it. And stay tuned to see what Tony does next as she takes the helm of Cook's Country. There's going to be all kinds of good stuff coming very soon. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In It's created and hosted by my daughter, L. Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Eve Bishop. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Penn Margolis, and Caroline Rickard. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawhan is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors. Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.